My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. My sermon title this morning is taken from uh, our reading from the book of Acts that we heard read just a few moments ago. And uh, it's just a very simple title, St. Paul in Athens. Or maybe we could say St. Paul amongst the gods. So this morning we are going to speak a little bit about the city-state of Athens. And some of you are like, yes, ancient history. But our scriptures are 2,000 years old. So, you know, it's kind of part and parcel of our, of our faith, right? There's a historian named Tom Holland, and uh, he notes in one of his books that the Athenians never tired of claiming that they had preserved their customs and their liberty inviolable, and that they were descended from the same ethnic stock from generation to generation, and that they had always lived there. And not only that, there was the belief that they were also of divine origin, as most of the ancient Greek city-states delighted in tracing their lineage back as far as they can in the most spectacular way possible. Now, I won't get into the details of how they believed they were founded, but the general sense is that the goddess Athena uh, took a rag and threw it on the ground, and then a child sprang forth from the ground, um, and then she adopted him, and then she settled him on what we would call today the Acropolis, specifically in the temple that was dedicated to her. Uh, I think it was called uh, uh, Athena Nike, right? Or Athena, the, the conqueror. That was a story they told themselves of their origins. See, this was seen as what gave them the right to live there, as well as the right to live out their culture in the way that they wanted to, and to spread their culture all around them. And they did. Uh, and it's interesting that in history, the Athenians, apart from Sparta, controlled the largest amount of territory in Greece at one point in time, but not through military means, right? Sparta had a lot of territory, uh, but they held it through conquest and through force of arms. But the Athenians, though they had a military and a navy, not so much. Not so much through violence or, or force of arms. By the time St. Paul arrives there, though, his glory days were behind them, but this is still the water in which the city and in that culture swam in, as it, as it were. Right, so I have all of this stuff going on in the background when St. Paul enters the city of Athens. Now, when he first gets in there, it says that, uh, it says that he's provoked, right? But he's not being provoked by somebody following him around and yelling at him as it happens elsewhere in Acts. And he's not being provoked by, you know, I don't know, people talking smack about him. He's being provoked by what he's seeing, what he's interacting with, right? The provocation comes from seeing what this great, beautiful city, known for its culture and, and its, its, its thoughts, what, what this great city was actually given over to. The worship of idols, the worship of false gods, right? Not even just one god, like the cult of Athena, right? The cult of Athena would be the main one worshipped by everybody in the city. But he sees multiple altars set up to multiple deities throughout the city. And we might think to ourselves, well, what, isn't this a wonderful example of a multicultural society? Well, I mean, maybe, 
right? In multicultural societies, different people have different places to worship the, the deities of where they came from. But I don't think so much, I don't think it's a one-to-one, -one, right? But there may be a multicultural society here in Athens, likely due to, you know, a trade, like, you know, trade goods and all that stuff. But Paul goes to the synagogue, as is his custom. We talked about this actually last week. But he goes there to evangelize the Jews. But then he also goes to the marketplace to do the same thing for the non-Jews, for the Gentiles. And he goes to the marketplace in Athens. And the marketplace currently is called the Plaka. And it's actually, if you go to Athens, I was fortunate enough to go when I was very young, uh, right under the uh, Acropolis. You have the Plaka, the marketplace. And the Acropolis is that high point in Athens where you can see the Parthenon, the temple to Athena. It's all kind of, some of it is, is still there. Some of those important sites of history. Right, so St. Paul is standing under the shadow of the gods of Athens, preaching about Jesus, preaching about the resurrection of the dead, what God has done for us in Christ. And his sermons get noticed by the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers. Right, the Epicureans generally were all about pleasure, and the Stoics were generally all about virtue. It goes a little bit deeper than that, but generally speaking, that's how we can describe the Epicureans and the Stoics. Seeking the good life experienced through pleasure and seeking the good life experienced through virtue. They call Paul a babbler, <laughs> preaching foreign deities. But it's enough to pique their interest because this is what Athens was known for, right? Philosophy. So they bring Paul to the Areopagus, which is a, a, a Greek word, mean, I think it means the hill of Ares, right? And so the Romans called Ares Mars, which is why it's called uh, Mars Hill. And you can actually go there. You can go to the Areopagus. You can go to Mars Hill and you can stand on the spot where Paul was. And you can see right across from you the Acropolis. And there's even a plaque at the Areopagus, at Mars Hill, about this is the site where St. Paul preached to the Athenians. It's still there. And they say, explain this new thing you're trying to teach us. This sounds strange. So St. Paul, when he starts the sermon, he doesn't start by tearing them down and be like, you guys are just a bunch of heathen idol worshipers, right? I'm going to fire from heaven's gun. No, he says, you know, guys and gals, I can see that you are very religious. Okay. So we have to understand too, right? When we say you are very religious, in the ancient world, there's no distinction between those who are religious and those who are not religious. There were no atheists in the ancient world. There was no secular and sacred in the ancient world. Right? The philosophers that did not believe maybe necessarily in the Greek gods of Zeus and, and, and Hermes and all those guys, they still, they, they didn't believe that there were no gods that existed at all. There's no distinction between secular and sacred because the two are bound together. And they are still bound together in our own day, in our own time. Paul, so Paul's not saying, like, here's multiple competing religions He's identifying the integration of the deities and beliefs into the fold of the city as they become part of the life of the city. There's room for everyone's, everyone's gods. And there might not even be any contradiction between these gods. Right? One of the things that the Romans were known for in particular was just taking the gods of a conquered people and saying, well, those are pretty cool. We'll just include them in our pantheon. And so they, basically that's what they did with the Greeks. 
is they took their pantheon as their own and gave them Latin names, right? So Zeus becomes Jupiter. But Paul says, I was walking down this road and I saw an altar that said, to the unknown God. To the unknown God. Right? So the, the Athenians are recognizing that there's all these deities, right? All these gods. Paul sees one altar that says, to the God we don't know. And that's the God maybe that in a city you might not want to offend because maybe that's the God that might tip the scales for or against you, like in conflict or something like that. But Paul says something interesting. He says, I'm actually here to tell you that this altar that you have to this God that you don't know, you're just sure that he's there. This God is actually the God that I serve. And this is the God that's actually the true God. And this unknown God can actually be known. And this is how you come to know this unknown God. We have to keep in mind as well during all this that St. Paul is not a Unitarian monotheist. St. Paul believes that there are many small g gods, but that the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the true God in the sense that he is supreme. He is the highest above all. Because he says, in him you live and move and have our being. All things come from him. The other gods actually exist in the mind of St. Paul, but they're not actually gods. They're actually demons. As he says in his epistles, the gods of the nations are demons. Right? So Paul doesn't try to fit Yahweh, the God of Israel, into the mold of Zeus or Athena and say, see, this is the unknown God in your stories. The unknown God is actually Zeus, is actually Athena. No, he says that this unknown God is the true God. And then he says that in his God, in Yahweh, the God of Israel, that they live and move and have their being. And then he says also they are his offspring. Now this is interesting, brothers and sisters, because in him we live and move and have our being, I believe, actually comes from a hymn to Zeus. And then the other part of it, we have his offspring is a, a, from a, a philosopher, I think. I think it's Epicetus. So what Paul does is say, Zeus is not the one in whom you live and move and have your being. Athena is not the one in whom you live and move and have your being. Yahweh, the God of Israel, the unknown God to you but known to me, he's the one in whom you live and move and have your being. All life comes from him. All being comes from him. You didn't spring up from Athena's cast off rags. You are the offspring, in a sense, of this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This unknown God can be known. See, Zeus and the gods of Olympus, they don't actually really create. The way they come into to power, if you will, is they, call, they fight a group of older gods, Kronos and the Titans, right? If you've read mythology in high school, like, like I did back in the day, if you can remember that, Zeus and the gods of Olympus, they take over from a group of other gods before them, usually their parents. And this is a succession cycle that you see in ancient religions throughout the history of the world. But St. Paul's taking a steamroller to this idea, right? He's like, this unknown God is God, and he is knowable. And then he says, you are allowed to carry on because of ignorance, right? The gall of St. Paul to in the place, in the very halls where philosophy, right, is, is debated and talked about with the Epicureans and the Stoics who had the better idea. He says, you all are ignorant. 
But God's overlooking that for a while. But now the time has come to repent and trust in Jesus. Jesus will return to judge the world. And God has shown this to be true by raising him from the dead. And it says, some mocked, but some believed. And some asked to hear more about this. So we think to ourselves, brothers and sisters, we are provoked in our own culture by what we see. I think the first thing that we need to ask ourselves is, well, who is God? Who is God? Is God knowable? And the answer, according to the Christian tradition, is yes, God is knowable. Ultimately, we say, well, God is unknowable, right? But God makes himself known to us in a certain way. And it's interesting, right? So when we think of, of our own country, right? Like guys like Thomas Jefferson or like Benjamin Franklin, right? They talked a lot about, they talked a lot about providence, right? Usually with a capital P, right? Our rights come you know, from providence. Or they may even reference God or something like that, right? But Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, they weren't Christians. They were deists. They were deists. In other words, they believed that there was maybe a God out there somewhere who basically just started everything and then stepped back and just lets everything run according to its course. They don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in the Spirit. They don't confess the Holy Trinity. They believe that there is maybe a God out there somewhere, but that God has nothing to do with us. There's no miracles. There's no resurrection. You can actually go and see something called the Jefferson Bible. And in the Jefferson Bible, Thomas Jefferson went to the, the Gospels and he took a thing and he cut out all of the references to the miracles of Jesus and just left Jesus' moral teaching. Because for Jefferson, Jesus is not, is not God. And as Christians, we confess that Christ is God. We also have references in our culture to the divine. Well, who is that? The divine. Well, you might even hear in, in some Christian uh, celebrations, oh, God known by many names. And if you were to ask them, well, what do you mean? Well, the divine. Well, what do you mean? Well, God is known by many different names throughout time and throughout history. Whatever your conception of the divine is, that's the name for you. Or maybe even a generic term, just God, right? Just God. Here's the thing. The word God can be referring to any conception of, of God. Because in our culture, right, God is whoever we conceive God to be. And I would say that we need to be aware of generic usages of the divine or general usage of the word God, right? Because the, those are just generic descriptors that you can then attach whatever you want to that to mean whatever you want that to mean. So in some way, if you ask somebody, do I believe in God? And they say, oh yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that's a good thing because when you ask them, well, who is God? They might just say, I don't know, you know, some guy up in the sky maybe or some, some being that made everything and just wants us all to be nice and good to one another. St. Paul <laughs> takes a steamroller to this sort of thing. There's no generic divine. There's no generic God. There's one God and Father. There's one Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and one Spirit. The Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. God has been revealed to us through His Son. So any conception of God, apart from God's own self-revelation of Jesus Christ, is not God, is not the true God. And we spent some time on this actually in, in confirmation class, right? Dealing with this idea that different religions have different conceptions of God because different religions have different ideas about what's actually wrong with humanity and how that gets fixed. So we cannot say that all gods are the same. We can't say even that God is you know, the divine in the sense that God is known by however you want to conceive of him. We can't say that. Because God has been revealed to us through his son. Right? So when we get provoked by what we see, our culture of confusion, our culture of death, our culture of pleasure at the expense of everything else, all of these are wrapped up to look like virtue. I read a, uh, I read a, a, a news article the other day where there was a person who was married and had some kids and they, they had a, a, at a party, they met somebody else and they were like, I have this electric connection with this person and whispered to them, I need to see you again. They go off and divorce their spouse, leave all of that behind, then go run for the person they had this electric connection with because this is my real soulmate, right? And then when they get to that person, like, I'm ready to be with you, that person's like, what are you, I don't, I don't want to have a relationship with you. And then this person writes about that experience like this is a growth thing for them. This is a wonderful thing that they did. No, that is confusion. A culture of confusion. And then we wrap that stuff up to look like a virtue. The false idols of our culture paw at us, demanding our attention and our fealty. And it's our job, like St. Paul, to enter the marketplace and to say, we don't worship a generic God. We don't worship just some vague concept of the divine God is however you want him to be or however you want to experience him. We enter the marketplace and says that God has been revealed to us through his son. We worship him through the means that he has given us, the word and the sacraments, church, worship, fellowship, all of those, the, the, all those aspects of the Christian faith. And any other, like, any other method of trying to know God is not of God. Because we're not worshiping then the same God. And these false idols of our culture paw at us. They demand our attention. They demand our fealty. And we turn away to them at our peril. And so our ignorance, God will overlook, I think, for a time. But that time is over and will soon be over because Christ, as we're going to confess in a few minutes, will return to judge the living and the dead. We are to then, as St. Paul says, to repent because it is in him we live and move and have our being. Our destiny is union with the Father through the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The unknown God has been made known to us. Let us worship him in spirit and in truth, with repentance, with sobriety, and with joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.